0: Good evening. Uh, as I think most of you know, I'm Sanford Unger, President of Goucher College, and we are delighted. Uh, I don't know how many years in a row now we have done a Constitution Day program, but uh, every year that we've been since we've been required to. Uh, just a brief history. Uh, senator Robert Byrd in his last years, uh, as I, th- I think he became the longest serving senator in the history of the United States Senate, but he was very devoted to the Constitution, and he passed a—he—he he promoted and saw to it that it was passed a bill requiring every institution of higher educa- of, of education, I believe, that gets any federal aid, to hold a program uh, commemorating Constitution Day, the anniversary of the day the Constitution was approved, and, uh, in 1789, that date is actually September 17th. And uh, it commemorates, I'm sorry, commemorates the day it was signed in 1787, uh, and the bill was passed in 2004. Uh, I don't know how strict compliance has been around the country, but we have very strictly complied and had a program every year on Constitution Day, on or around Constitution Day, on some aspect of the Constitution and and, uh, our rights as citizens. Um, So... Uh, We've tried to explore interesting uh, issues every year, and this year I must say we have uh, certainly one of the best yet, and that's James Rosen from the Fox News Channel. Uh, James, who uh, has had a very uh, meteoric rise in journalism, began at Fox News in 1999, having previously worked uh, for Dan Rather at uh, CBS and he's now the Chief Washington Correspondent of Fox News and also hosts the online show The Foxhole. The Foxhole, sorry. Uh, James's coverage of Washington has included the White House, the State Department, the Supreme Court, Capitol Hill, the Pentagon, etc. and he's uh, been all over the country, three dozen foreign countries across five continents in his uh, journalism career. Uh, he His book uh, that has been widely acclaimed, is called the strong man, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate. And some of us over a certain age uh, in this room remember the extraordinary importance of Attorney General John Mitchell during the Nixon administration. Um, I, don't, I try to avoid superlatives, James, but I think, I think John Mitchell was the meanest man I've ever met. <laughs> of all the, and I've met a lot of mean people. in in my journalism career. In any event, uh, uh, James is here not just because he knows so much about the First Amendment and these issues, but he has been, uh, and one wants to use these words carefully, he's been the object of an investigation by the Justice Department and the FBI related to a a story that he published online Uh, in June 2009, so that's quite a while ago now, four years ago, about North Korea's nuclear program and the fact that it might respond to UN sanctions by conducting further nuclear tests. Uh, This administration has made a point of trying to protect uh, so-called national security secrets and... uh, it, so, James has been among other people who were pursued, uh, and the person who is allegedly his source for this story uh, has been indicted by a grand jury. Was indicted in August 2010 by a grand jury, and uh, on two charges: unauthorized disclosure of national defense information in violation of the Espionage Act, allegedly to James Rosen and then making false statements in violation of Title 18, allegedly because of his denial of having had contact with James Rosen. Uh, Though he was indicted in August 2010, Mr. Kim's trial has not yet occurred and is expected to occur in 2014. Uh, Much has been written on this subject. Uh, James Rosen has been labeled uh, by certain federal officials as a co-conspirator in this matter. Uh, He was called in some documents a flight risk. I think there's always a risk that he may be taking a flight at any moment in the course of his job, but the notion of him as a flight risk, uh, someone as prominent as he is in Washington journalism, is, uh, well, maybe it's not amusing, but it seems implausible. Uh, And so uh, because he was labeled a flight risk, He was not informed that his movements and his activities were being monitored by the FBI. So he comes to us tonight with a very uh, unusual perspective on these matters. Uh, I would note that just yesterday in a perhaps similar but not exactly parallel case, uh, a former FBI agent who has acknowledged being the source of a leak of confidential information to a reporter for the Associated Press. That former FBI agent has now pleaded guilty and agreed to serve prison time uh, as part of his plea bargain. So uh, some of us who have worked in journalism for many years and are concerned about the First Amendment are very worried about the precedent that that sets. And of course, a number of people are asking whether there might be parallels between that case, which just reached its denouement yesterday, and the one involving uh, James Rosen and his alleged source. So with that rather complex outline, um, I hope you'll join me in giving a goucher welcome to James Rosen of Fox News.
1: Allegedly, thank you for coming. Oh, man, Um, my thanks to President Unger and Professor Zurich, who's here somewhere, for inviting me here to Goucher tonight for uh, first addressing their class and a lovely dinner that we just had at the president's house and and for having me here with all of you tonight. Can you all hear me all right? Everybody good? Okay. Um, You know, I thought I would come and, and just pander to the crowd. You know, this is a university crowd. It's probably very liberal. They're suspicious of the Fox News guy, so uh, I thought I'd just pander to you, and I drafted a number of documents that I brought with me for that purpose. The first of them sets an actual dollar figure for the reparations that, on behalf of Mr. Hannity and O'Reilly, Fox News is prepared to pay to you all for everything they've ever said. Uh, <laughs> if someone wants to collect. Um, And then I also drafted with me a bill of particulars for the impeachment of Senator Ted Cruz. I thought that would go over well. Um, Look, the fact is that I've been working for Fox News for almost 15 years now. I started in February of 1999. Uh, At the time I took the job, I registered as an independent and I have been thusly registered ever since. I'm a reporter. Good reporters become reporters because they suffer from a peculiar compulsion, not just to live in their times, but to chronicle their times. For the good reporter, it is not enough to enjoy Saturday night, to have to enjoy Saturday night and then tell you all about it Sunday morning. Those are the reporters among us. And consequently, good reporters are really not personally invested in the outcomes of the stories that they cover. 9-11 brought a certain peculiarity to those kinds of considerations. We were suddenly under attack. We had lost 3,000 people on a sunny, a sunny Tuesday morning. Uh, and two towers that seemed like they would be there forever just suddenly were gone. And we were at war. And so... Even the most ascetic, um, intellectually committed and rigorous reporters among us still consider themselves at that point in time Americans who wanted their country to survive, if only as a way of continuing their own means of earning a living. Um, So we are invested in some of the outcomes of our stories. We do want the United States to survive. We do want this country to thrive so we can continue being reporters, so I can feed my kids, etc. But by and large, good reporters are not invested in the outcomes of the stories they cover. They just want to see the game played spectacularly well or spectacularly badly so that it makes it more interesting to write about. Those are the good reporters among us. I submit to you that I'm one of them. Um, with respect to the circumstances that Sandy described, You will understand, you will have to understand, with some forbearance, that I'm limited in how much I can say about it. There is a man who is accused of having committed crimes that allegedly occurred four years ago and who has not yet been put on trial for those alleged crimes. That's supposed to happen in early 2014. Because of the situation of a pending legal trial, I'm very limited in what I can say about it. Moreover, the journalistic ethics attendant upon the source-reporter relationship would naturally make anyone in my position uh, somewhat hesitant in what they could say about the situation. Suffice to say, I will always honor the confidentiality of my sources as a reporter. Suffice to say... I mean, look at me, I'm pretty ordinary. I don't seem like that criminal that Sandy described to you, do I? Raise your hands if I seem like the criminal Sandy described. All right, thank you very much. (laughs) Security, if you would, please. Uh, uh, And I'm certainly not a flight risk. I have two small boys, age six and three. I'm on TV every day. Jonah Goldberg, who is a graduate of Goucher, who was one of the first male graduates of Goucher and a friend of mine who was a contributor at Fox News, you see him on there all the time giving his opinions for a living, wrote the best of the columns about my situation when all of this erupted into public view in May. He wrote about the idea of me being categorized by the FBI in a search warrant application as a flight risk. He said, putting aside the fact that James has two small kids and a wife and that he's on TV every day and really there's no place he could hide, um, if James outran the hounds, Jonah wrote, perhaps he, he could become a lumberjack someplace and dazzle his new compatriots with his William F. Buckley Jr. impersonation. Um, there was something farcical, obviously, in what went on in my case. I was labeled a co-conspirator in, a, in an alleged violation of the Espionage Act. The Department of Justice, when all this became public, some three years after the documents were filed, made clear that they had no intention of prosecuting me and never had any intention of prosecuting me. So the question then becomes, why would you label someone a co-conspirator if you had no intention of prosecuting him? As it turns out, this was done, as the department freely admitted, for the purpose of uh, complying with a certain law with which the Department of Justice needed to comply in order to gain access to my private emails. Floyd Abrams uh, is a longtime attorney and specialist in First Amendment and free speech issues, and he put it best, and I'm paraphrasing, but faithfully. He said that limiting someone's liberty. Curtailing someone's freedoms, such as your right to privacy, your right to send and and receive emails, free of government scrutiny. Limiting someone's liberties for the sake of expediency, that is to satisfy a law, to allege me to be a criminal, even though you have no intention of prosecuting me, for the sake of expediency, is the definition of tyranny. If I take away one of your rights, just because it's expedient for me to do so right now, even though I really recognize that you have no reason to have your rights taken away from you, but it's expedient for me to do so, and I do so for some limited time just because it suits my purposes, even though it's not grounded in morality or law, that's tyranny. And if it could happen to me, it could happen to any one of you. Uh, The question has been raised as to whether or not the fact that I work for Fox News, in my view, figured into what happened to me. It might be useful background to consider that in 2009, in the first year of the Obama administration, the communications director for the White House at that time, Anita Dunn, came out publicly and said that Fox News is not a real news organization. Fox News is an arm, she said, of the Republican Party. It is a propaganda unit. At a short time thereafter, the White House tried to get the pool to dislodge Fox News from the pool. What is the pool? The pool is the rotation of the five major cable and network news operations, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News. Since 1996 or thereabouts, Fox News has been a member in good standing of the pool. What does the pool do? The pool shares and rotates the duties and the costs associated with covering the president and the secretary of state and the vice president when they go on expensive foreign trips, when they go to Des Moines to talk to audiences, etc. The pool rotates. Today, it's, oh, it's ABC. It goes alphabetically, as it turns out and those duties and those costs are rotated and shared by those five news organizations. Shortly after Ms. Dunn made her comments about Fox News not being a real news organization, being an arm of the Republican Party, an effort was made by the Obama White House to get the pool to evict Fox News from it some 14, 13, 14 years after we had been a functioning member of the pool. The pool, consisting of ABC News, CBS News, NBC News, CNN and us, rejected that claim by the White House and stood up for us. Do I think that the fact that I am the chief Washington correspondent for Fox News, in fact, the reporter who covered the story of when Anita Dunn said those things, and when we were tried to be evicted from the pool, the fact that I was the reporter doing that story, do I think that that was somehow overlooked when decisions were made about whether or not I should be surveilled, whether or not I should have... Uh, my email records uh, obtained illegally, whether, in fact, my parents' phone records should be obtained by the Department of Justice, my parents' phone records in Staten Island, New York. Do I think the fact that I work for Fox News was somehow overlooked at that point? I don't, even though I am, as I said to you at the outset, a registered independent since 1999, long before Barack Obama assumed office. So these are some of the issues that I've contended with recently. As Sandy noted, I have covered the White House for five years, the last year of Bill Clinton, first four of George W. Bush. I've covered the State Department uh, under Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton, interviewed each of them three or four times, been to 40 countries, just traveled with Secretary of State Kerry earlier this month to Geneva, Israel, and France, Geneva being where he concluded the deal with the Russians to dismantle the Syrian chemical weapons arsenal. You have to wonder, by the way, about a government that will designate somebody a criminal co-conspirator in violation of the Espionage Act and a flight risk, but yet will allow that person's hard pass to continue functioning so that he can access the White House grounds. They will allow his State Department pass to continue functioning so that he can go in and out of the State Department that will actually take that individual on US government-sponsored trips with the Defense Secretary, Robert Gates, in 2010, that took us to Afghanistan and Iraq. If I was really a flight risk, liable to run off because I'm a criminal co-conspirator, you'd think the government wouldn't be in the business of taking me to foreign countries, let alone to several stops in several days. I think, The farcical nature of this impresses itself upon you. As Sandy also noted, I spent, I'm ashamed to tell you, 17 years, 17 years, my adult life, working on a book about Watergate, about the Attorney General of the United States, the nation's number one law enforcement officer. His name was John Mitchell. He was Richard Nixon's law partner He was his campaign manager in 1968 when Nixon won the presidency, which was an amazing comeback because Nixon had been written off for dead in political life after losing to John Kennedy in 1960, after losing the 1962 gubernatorial race out in California, after which Nixon famously said, just think what you're gonna be missing. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Six years later, he was president of the United States. John Mitchell managed that campaign. Mitchell then served as attorney general of the United States from 1969 to 1972, a three-year period that saw the rise of the radical anti-war groups, the Weather Underground, which were planting bombs at the Capitol and elsewhere, domestic terrorists, the Black Panthers, the killings at Kent State University. It was a really scary and turbulent time to be the nation's chief law enforcement officer. From 1969 to 1972, The percentage of black kids who attended segregated schools in the South declined from 68% to 8%. Who was the chief law enforcement officer of the country at that time, charged with making sure that the laws handed down by the Congress and interpreted by the Supreme Court of the United States were faithfully executed? John Mitchell, Richard Nixon's law partner a municipal bond attorney in private practice on Wall Street, a pipe-smoking, pretty chill guy. He said a famous thing to Coretta Scott King, the widow of Martin Luther King, and other black leaders who paid a visit to him at the Justice Department in 1969. He said, You would be well advised not only to watch what we say, but watch what we do. It's been boiled down, and you'll see it in every op-ed every 10 days or so. John Mitchell famously said, Watch what we do, not what we say. It was taken as a great example of two-facedness in Washington at the time. But in fact, what he was saying was, we've all heard about Brown versus Board of Ed, 1954 Supreme Court ruling, which said that the United States must desegregate its public schools with all deliberate speed. All deliberate speed. What does that mean? Get about it. That was 1954. In 1969, the year that Nixon and Mitchell took office, another Supreme Court decision was handed down in Holmes v. Alexander, which said, now, do it now. The idea of desegregating the public school system in the hot summers of 1969 and 1970, when there had already been race riots in Watts and other cities, when the riots after Martin Luther King's assassination had destroyed Washington, D.C. and other cities for decades, the idea that you would desegregate the public school system peaceably, without violence, that you would bring that statistic down from 68% to 8% over three years' time and do it without violence, that was by no means a given. That was an accomplishment of the Nixon-Mitchell administration, White House and the Department of Justice. And what Mitchell meant when he said, watch what we do, not what we say, what he meant was the rhetorical rewards this administration is gonna to give to Southern whites who are actually liable to vote for Richard Nixon for re-election in 1972. But the substantive rewards, watch what we do, not what we say, are going to go to black students and we're gonna enforce the law. And it's a major achievement. It's one you can read more about in my book, The Strongman, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate. And it's one that people don't talk about quite by the design of Nixon and Mitchell, who knew that the constituencies that would be most apt to welcome this development would be least likely to vote for them. And then, of course, as a result of his involvement in the Watergate cover-up, John Mitchell became the highest-ranking U.S. official to this day... He died in 1988. To this day, the highest-ranking US official ever to go to prison, to be convicted of a crime, to go to prison and be incarcerated. As I mentioned, he was a bond lawyer on Wall Street, a pipe-smoking, chill dude, uh, prior to his involvement with Nixon. President Jimmy Carter denied him parole because presumably he was such a threat to the community. He was the last of the Watergate prisoners to emerge from prison in 1979. It took me 17 years to write that book. I always regarded those 17 years and the book I produced as perhaps the best thing I'll ever do professionally. As I mentioned, maybe I didn't mention, I have two boys who are six and three. And I thought, someday I'll just give this book to the boys when they're of an age to not care. uh, And say, here's what your dad did with his adult life in addition to being a reporter who traveled to 40 countries and covered the White House and covered the State Department and did all those things. Now, following this spring, uh, when these disclosures about the Department of Justice and me became front-page news, when I was forced to take out my iPhone and take a photograph of the computer screen to document the fact that I was out-trending Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift on Twitter, I thought, well, someday I'll, th- I'll show this to the boys when they're of an age to appreciate all this, and perhaps, just perhaps, Twitter will still be something that people have heard of and used. Um, we're moving fast, as you know. Who remembers MySpace? Um, as a result of all of that, where you have an Attorney General of the United States, and Eric Holder, who... Uh, has acknowledged approving the search warrant signed by an FBI officer uh, in which I was labeled a criminal co-conspirator even though the department had no intention of prosecuting me and a flight risk. And you had the same attorney general testify five days before my case became widely known that uh, to Congress that he had never heard of the idea of a member of the news media potentially being prosecuted for involvement in the disclosure of classified material and that it was something he had never been involved in and never heard of and wouldn't think would be wise policy under oath. Now that all of that has happened, I'm forced to look back on my 17 years of work on the, the Watergate book and recognize that my work for all those years on a book about an attorney general of the United States who's involved in surveillance who was convicted of lying to the Congress, that my work on that book wasn't just my work on that book, but so weirdly, a kind of manifest destiny that was but mere prelude to my involvement in this current controversy, which is by no means over. Well, that was weird. There's not many of us who can look back on our life and say, you know what? It was marching toward a certain point that there was an arc to it that makes sense only many years after the fact. The story about me has died down for the time being. Uh, In June, it was sort of eclipsed by the Snowden revelations. But it's not done. The individual who remains charged with those felonies, such as Sandy described, is scheduled, from what I read, to go to trial in early 2014. I expect that the public interest in the matter will resume to some extent, if not to the frenzied point where I'm out trending Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber. But it remains ahead. Throughout, I like to think of myself as a good reporter. Even in the case where I myself am in the news and not just on the news, divested from the outcome, ready to follow the facts where they may, and ready to report them to you. Thank you very much. I'll be happy to take any questions you might have.
0: We have two microphones in their usual place, I think, or we will soon, uh, where people can come to ask James questions, usual rules apply. Uh, Goucher students have the first priority to ask questions. James, before we we turn to some student questions, I want to just uh, raise a question or two for you. Myself, um, to what extent do you think th- this? I I don't even know whether to call it a case against you, but this situation uh, is intended or will have the effect of intimidating people from reporting stories as so many of us have over the years that depend upon government sources, government documents, information uh, directly or indirectly that is officially classified is do you think this is just a, that you're just a pawn to be used to warn people away from this? And if so, why didn't the Justice Department or the FBI announce the extent of this sooner? Why did it take a couple of years for this to come out in a story in the Washington Post?
1: You know, in high school I was voted most likely to wind up as a pawn. Um, that was a joke, <laughs> all right, it's okay to laugh. Um, Look, I think the, we start with a fact. Let's start with a fact that is unassailable, and that is that Barack Obama, as President of the United States, is presiding over more uh, federal prosecutions for allegedly unauthorized leaks to the news media than all 43 presidents who preceded him combined and the individual who is the name defendant in the case that revolves around my work is one of them. I'm the only TV guy of all the reporters involved in those cases. You may have read about another reporter named James Risen. There's a lot about my case that is just too much for people to absorb, it kind of blows their mind. A, Fox News has real reporters. Fox News has real reporters who cover national security stuff like North Korea. Fox News has real reporters who cover such things who break exclusive stories. The guy that's at the center of this wrote the book about John Mitchell and Watergate. What? And there's another dude involved in a very similar case whose name is James Risen as opposed to Rosen. It is a bit hard to absorb, I grant you in the in the Risen case you have a, f- a former CIA officer who is charged with allegedly providing uh, classified information to a reporter for the New York Times named James Risen i will confess sandy that I, before i even got into journalism as a profession i used to see James Risen's byline on the front page of the New York Times, and I would put my little pinky over the eye and just imagine if it were my name. Uh, Mr. Risen has refused to testify like most good reporters would. Recently, the Court of Appeals, one rung below the United States Supreme Court, ruled that Mr. Risen enjoys, as a reporter, no shield and no protections whatsoever from the laws, and therefore he is obligated to testify in that case involving this ex-CIA officer. Uh, This has profound implications, not only for the other reporters who are part of these eight or so leak prosecutions that the Obama administration is presiding over, but for all reporters going forward. Is there a chilling effect? I think there is. Was that the intent? I think it was. Um, am I a pawn? I'll leave that to others to, dis- to, to characterize me. But I hope they're good reporters who are not invested in the outcomes of their stories.
0: Okay, let's take a couple questions from the audience. We'll ask the students students first. Uh, we'll ask the students to identify themselves, where they're from, what they're studying. Eric, we'll start with you.
2: Okay, I'm Eric. Um, I'm from... Potomac, Maryland. Um, I'm a sophomore, and I'm studying communications. Um, I do agree with you on most things, actually. I agree that Obama's not been very good about this type of issue. Um, the thing that kind of made me a little bit un- uneasy was when you co- compared it to tyranny. Um, the thing is, I-, I agree that it was wrong. I don't think it was so wrong that it was, like, equivalent to... Of our, you know, it's hard to explain, but I think that, say, it's not just Obama who's done this. Bush has done this. Every president has done this. Obama's done it more, but he's not changing that much, is what I'm trying to say, I guess.
1: Thank you, Eric. Um, again, let's just traffic in the facts here. I didn't say that it's bad that Obama has done this. I just cited a fact to you that, as president, he's presiding over more of these federal leak prosecutions than all of his predecessors combined. Whether that's good or bad, as Fox News like to say, we report and you decide. So I didn't say it was bad. Secondly, um, I didn't liken it to tyranny. I simply quoted what Floyd Abrams, one of the most preeminent lawyers on these subjects, said about it. Lastly, you are in error, sir, when you say that what President Obama has done is not dissimilar from what President Bush did and his predecessors did. The designation of me as a co-conspirator in the violation of the Espionage Act and a flight risk is new. It's the first time a reporter has ever been designated as a criminal by the U.S. government for doing his job. There is no analog to that in the Bush administration, 41 or 43. There is no analog to that in the Nixon administration. Sandy Unger was someone I I have looked up to for many, many years and never met until uh, this evening. Uh, For my many years of work on that biography of Attorney General Mitchell, Mitchell was deeply involved in the Pentagon Papers case, Uh, but never. In all the actions of the Nixon administration, was there ever put on paper by by that administration a designation of a given reporter for doing his job, not even Neil Sheehan, the reporter who received the 7,000 pages of classified documents from Daniel Ellsberg in the leak of the Pentagon Papers, the notion that he was a criminal for doing so? This is a first. That's a fact.
0: Thank you, Eric. I think we'll move along. Max? Yeah.
3: All right, so... Whoa, Max, whoa, you want to right. identify yourself please. Okay, I am Max Adelstein. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles, California. I intend to be a political science major. So in the spectrum of, spectrum of leakers in modern memory, you would start with Ellsberg, then probably go to yourself, then Assange, then to Edward Snowden. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum in terms of, you know, the severity of what you did if you think it was, you know, like obviously you spent more time looking through what you were publishing, more so than the other leakers, but how do you feel that plays into the history of, you know, modern, or the relationship really between the press and the government? Where do you think you stand on
1: that? Well, I throw myself on the mercy of the court of Max Edelstein is what I do. (laughs) Uh, Look, you just conflated me with the leakers, right? You mentioned me in a lineage that included Ellsberg, Assange, and Snowden, and I'm not one of those guys. I'm a reporter. They are leakers. Um, in the case of Assange, I'm not even sure he's technically the leaker, but he's this sort of principal of an organization that uh, facilitated leaks. Um, And in terms of characterizing the damage that I've done, again, there's a great supposition in your question, which which is that I've done damage to the United States by virtue of my reporting. Let's be clear about what I reported. In June 2010, I reported first online and then on television that uh, according to a, a briefing that President Obama had received not long before, North Korea was likely to respond to the imposition of sanctions on North Korea by the United Nations Security Council in response to what had been a recent test of a nuclear device with four countermeasures, which were A, more nuclear tests, B, uh, an escalation of its highly enriched uranium program which, by the way, Secretary of State Clinton at that time was not acknowledging existed, and which is now acknowledged to have provided for their third nuclear test in, uh, in February. Uh, C, an escalation in their plutonium program, and D, I can't remember the fourth, Max. It's been a while. Um, but I also reported around that same time some other stories, which I happen to think occasioned the government's interest in the actions it eventually took, which involved signals intelligence, U.S. signals intelligence, uh, learning certain things about what was being done inside North Korea with respect to the succession program that was then underway from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un. In reporting about the four countermeasures that North Korea was likely to take, There isn't anyone who studies North Korea that wouldn't have predicted those same four countermeasures. Whether that information properly should have been classified, or the fact that President Obama had just recently received a briefing to that effect should properly have been classified, may be an issue at trial. Um, I don't think I did any damage to the United States. Raise your hand if you felt damaged from what I did in what I reported in 2009. Um, so I think it could that could be an intimidating request <laughs> raise, your, raise your hand if you feel damaged by my remarks tonight uh, um, so I think that um, it was wrong in your question to place me with those characters and to ask what kind of damage I might have committed um, but we can still be friends Max I
3: wasn't uh, trying to put you in that category, just kind of, you know, make a comparison between the four people. And
1: Before you go, yeah. you know, Tom Friedman of the New York Times has won the Pulitzer Prize three times for his commentary. He's a, he writes on the op-ed page in the New York Times. He's a columnist. I respect Tom Friedman. I've spent years respecting Tom Friedman. Tom Friedman went on Meet the Press on NBC News when my case was big in the headlines and said that one of the reasons that James Rosen should be thought to have gone over a red line himself was because James Rosen said that the CIA had had a source inside the North Korean government and that's how we knew what countermeasures they might take and what President Obama was being briefed in fact Nowhere in that article did I state that CIA had a source inside the North Korean government. Tom Friedman said that on Meet the Press. What I had stated in my article in June of 2009 was that CIA knew these likely countermeasures based on sources inside North Korea. To a sophisticated reader of these things, or a consumer of intelligence, they understand what that means. Sources inside Goucher College. Well, that, those could be open sources like reading the queue. Those could be human, what they call human, human intelligence, people I've met on the campus. It could be SIGINT, signals intelligence, were I wiretapping Sandy's phone, which I'm not. <laughs> but the point is, for me to have said, That CIA knew what it knew based on sources inside North Korea was fairly broad, deliberately so. As a matter of fact, Fox News withheld certain information that we had learned in the reporting of that same story from our reporting of that same story. And we said on the air that we weren't disclosing everything we knew. But here is Tom Friedman, three-time Pulitzer Prize winner for the New York Times, appearing with my friend David Gregory on NBC News' Meet the Press to say, that James Rosen crossed a red line because he stated in his story that the CIA has a source inside the North Korean government. Well, I didn't say we have a source inside the North Korean government. And if I knew such a thing, I wouldn't say it. But there is a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner going on national television, one of the most prestigious programs in the Sunday constellation of talk shows, and talking fast and loose In a very cavalier way about what I wrote. So, why do you think Friedman did that? I have to ascribe it to a certain intellectual laziness. He didn't actually familiarize himself with what I actually said, and he went on a Sunday show and, in essence, ran his mouth. So, the point being. Have
0: you complained to him about that? Have you talked to him?
1: This is that forum. Okay. Uh, But my point being that. Well, let him know. You know, whether it's a questioner at a college forum who wants to sort of speak loosely and tie you in with Ellsberg and Snowden in some vague, hazy, pasty way, or whether it's a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner on NBC News, meet the press. We have to be very wary of what you hear and what the facts really are. And if I could leave you with any particular lesson, be careful about the facts. Facts matter. James, do you think he did that because you're from Fox News? Is that what you're
0: suggesting? I'm, I'm trying to understand I think your
1: better source on these kind of questions, Sandy, is Tom Friedman. Um, whether he, I can't plumb his motives. I can only say, here's someone I've respected for years who has been lionized by our industry, and who was just talking fast and loose in a cavalier way that was utterly false. And in fact, if his assertion was that I had crossed a red line, what was the red line? That if we had such a source in the North Korean government and I had said so, that that person would be at jeopardy of losing their life because we know how this North Korean government behaves towards perceived moles. Well, as it turns out, I didn't say any such thing. Only Tom Friedman on Meet the Press said such a thing. So how many frantic mole hunts in the higher echelons of the North Korean government did he set in motion with those comments? How many people lost their lives as a result of what Tom Friedman had to say? Maybe none. But again, you're talking about national security subjects. It behooves you to speak with precision. And so I know Max is a conscientious fellow. We met in class earlier today. But again, I would impress upon you especially if you have any interest in, in uh, pursuing journalism as a career, to be very careful with your words and very careful with the facts. I think Max, Whole reputations, all, all sorts of things, hang on those things.
0: I think Max gets your point. <laughs> Let's go Max,
1: there will be ice cream later. Don't worry.
4: Uh, my name is Nina Crane, and I'm from Boston, and I'm a communications major as well. Uh, In our classes, we discuss a lot the role of the journalist and the reporter as a watchdog for the public and whether or not that should be their sole role. And based on the fact that you seem to have a very concrete idea of what your personal media ethics and ways of reporting the facts are, if you could go back and you could decide whether or not to do this again, would you or would you just do it and do it differently?
1: That's a great question, which I deeply resent. Um, (laughs) First of all, what you mentioned first was the notion of the reporter as the public watchdog. When I have the opportunity to speak to young people, particularly those who are, who have expressed some interest in pursuing journalism as a career, one of the questions I routinely ask is, why? Why do you want to be a reporter? And again, amongst those who have so identified themselves, you hear a range of responses that generally go something like this. I want to help people. I want to help children. I want to speak truth to power. I want to be a voice for the voiceless. Uh, I want to be the little guy's representative. Those, um, are,
0: those are good things to want to be, aren't they?
1: They're wonderful things to aspire to, Sandy. They have nothing to do with why good reporters become reporters. And I'll tell you why. You want to help people? Become a social worker. You want to be, help children? Become a children's advocate. You want to speak truth to power? Be a columnist, not a reporter. You want to be the voice for the little guy? Run for Congress. The only reason Good reporters become reporters, in my view, and I take as I'm prepared to recognize a a certain ascetic view of this. The only reason that good reporters become reporters is for two simple words. The record. One of my heroes is Tom Wolfe, who uh, is the guy who wears the white suits. Uh, He's mostly known at this point for his novels like Bonfire of the Vanities, and uh, he wrote I Am Charlotte Simmons. Prior to that, he wrote The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, Radical Chic. Prior to that, he was a reporter. And on the back cover of one of Tom Wolfe's books, I think it's um, the one from Atlanta. What's the name of that one, Sandy? Um, A Man in Full. There is a blurb from one of the reviewers, and it pays to Tom Wolfe what I think... Is the greatest compliment that any reporter could ever be paid. It said, no one has gotten more of his times down onto paper than Tom Wolf. That's what reporters are engaged in the business of doing. We accrue facts about our times to the record of our times. If my accrual of the facts about our times to the record of our times, albeit in an entertaining and digestible way, should serve somehow against the interest of helping people, that can't be my concern. If criminals or child molesters or, you know, drug cartels somehow take the facts about our times that I've adduced to the record of our times and put those to their advantage, that can't be my concern. My only concern is not to help people, it's not to help children, it's not to be a voice for the voiceless, it's not to speak truth to power, it's not to represent the little guy. My job is to accurately reflect what happened and do it in an entertaining and digestible way so that they come back the next day and I still have a job.
0: So to get back to Nina's question, would you do anything differently if you had to All right, to that's the second the...
1: part of her question. The first part of her question, talked about um, serving as a watchdog. So, I wanted to address that carefully because it's not the point from which I proceed. Were I to do this differently, uh, were I to have it over, to do over again, would I do it differently? I can't say that I would. I proceeded at all points in good faith. I proceeded at all points with a reverence for the facts and the record of our times and the fact that some people may have overreacted to that or reacted to it in an illegal way or uh, an inappropriate way, again, can't be my concern, even when it material affects me, materially affects me. So, uh, to paraphrase Frank Sinatra, I have no regrets.
0: What if, what if just to extend Nina's question, what if uh, information came to your attention that somebody uh, who was identified as a result of your conversations with your alleged source was executed by the North Korean regime. Would that give you pause?
1: Have you stopped beating your wife lately, Sandy? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's a preposterous question. I mean, gee, would you feel bad if something you did resu- you knew resulted in someone else's death? You know, that's akin to saying, do you have any human emotions? Do you feel? Um, Again, were somebody to take actions as a result of the facts that I accurately reported and adduced to the record of our times, that in turn were illegal or uh, unethical or murderous, I certainly wouldn't want to be the proximate cause of such an event, but I can't say that I would rush to take responsibility for it, Sandy. Alyssa.
2: Hi, my name is Alyssa. I'm also from Massachusetts. Um, My question is to you that in an article written by the Washington Post, um, you were allegedly using aliases in corresponding with your alleged correspondent (laughs) um, about the documents that you talked about with North Korea. So my question is are you really that surprised that there's such a hubbub about, you know, uh, criticizing reporters because it seems like you knew that something was going to um, happen after these interactions or moreover, are you, in, are you surprised that more didn't happen as a cause of that?
1: Well, I'm grateful to have all my arms and legs, if that's what you're asking. Um, And I'm grateful to be with you and not in communicating with you via teleconference from Gitmo. Um, Look, what you're asking is akin to asking Bob Woodward in his famous dealings with Deep Throat, which by the way is kind of a farce and a fiction that has been thoroughly debunked uh, by me and others. Um, You know, Was there something wrong with him using a flower pot on a balcony to communicate with his source, Um, you know, uh, was there something wrong with the very use of the term Deep Throat in All the President's Men? He didn't identify him. I don't think his name was actually Deep Throat. Um, Again, just as an aside, as someone who worked on Watergate for 17 years, uh, almost everything you know about Deep Throat and, and Woodward's work on All the President's Men is a fiction and a lie. And it has been thoroughly debunked by Woodward's biographers, by uh, Ben Bradley's biographers, who was the executive editor at the Washington Post. But the point is, to your question, should reporters have the right to uh, use clandestine means of meeting with their sources? Or must every meeting with a source and a reporter take place, you know, outside the gates of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or on the internet. And I should imagine that you, as someone who's invested in the United States and in the free press and in the public's right to know, would endorse precisely those methods that reporters and sources regard as most necessary for them to do their jobs um, in order for those imperatives to be met.
0: Gentleman from New Mexico.
5: Hi, I'm Aaron. I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm a freshman intended history theater major. Um, if you were pr- um, prosecuted and convicted, what would happen to you? I mean, how long would you go to jail? How long would would, would you be fined? What would actually end up happening to you?
1: The Department of Justice has indicated publicly that it has no intention to prosecute me as a as a result of its investigation into this gentleman who's, who's soon to stand trial. So I seem to be free and clear of the dire circumstances you conjure. Um, but depending on the federal offense, um, one assumes I would do jail time and prison time and lose my right to, uh, to vote and, and face all of the other penalties that federal convicts face. Um, I mentioned before the case of James Risen, the New York Times reporter who has refused to testify in connection with the trial or the proceedings against a uh, a former CIA officer who is accused of leaking classified material to Mr. Risen. And as I mentioned, the Court of Appeals, one rung below the United States Supreme Court, has ruled that Mr. Risen must testify in this proceeding, that he enjoys by virtue of his status as a reporter, no protections at all that anyone else wouldn't enjoy. Um, Given Mr. Ryzen's posture to date, it seems fairly certain that he's on a course where he's gonna be called formally to testify in these proceedings and he's going to refuse and most likely be held in contempt of court and then be put in jail either until the judge dismisses him of that obligation or uh, the case is somehow vitiated or he decides to testify. You may recall in the so-called Scooter Libby case, uh, the Valerie Plain case under the Bush administration some seven, eight years ago, a New York Times reporter was in a similar position named Judith Miller. She is now a contributor for Fox News. Fox News has contributors who used to work for the New York Times. And she refused to testify when she was so summoned. And she spent 85 days in jail. This could be a scenario with which I gain more intimate familiarity. Is Judith
0: Miller a hero for her stand she took?
1: I think so.
2: Jackie? Jackie? Hi, I'm Jackie Pizer. I am a senior communications and American studies double major from Dallas, Texas.
1: And also...
2: Oh, the editor-in-chief of, of the Quadecum. Um, the, the
1: editor of the school newspaper. So this is a ringer, this is a pro, <laughs> this is a shark, and you know <laughs> you what we do to sharks. Up. All right, go ahead, Jackie.
2: <laughs> no, I don't want to ask my question. Um, so you mentioned that there is a line between being a journalist and then also violating the law. Um, And I was just wondering where or what is that line between being a co-conspirator but then also doing your job as a journalist? Like, When has it gone too far?
1: I can't say that I am an attorney because I'm not. And I can't say that I'm a constitutional scholar because I'm not. And I can't say I'm a futurist because I'm not. Um, So I can't tell you the precise moment in which that line is crossed. But I think with some safety and security, I can tell you that uh, we could all, in a very short period of time, devise homeland-style scenarios where a given news organization would be presented with the opportunity to publish information, which, if published, would present a direct, material, and clear and present danger to the national security of the United States.
2: Did that happen with The Guardian, though, with Snowden? Like, could you argue that?
1: Well, arguing as much would be somewhat difficult, given that, what, 90 days or so have passed since The Guardian published, and we haven't suffered some imminent catastrophe. But I think that, without respect to Snowden and The Guardian, we could very easily put our minds together and devise a kind of ticking bomb scenario, or some other kind of hypothetical whereby the publication of certain information would be very damaging to the national security of the United States, and um, some very aggressive effort to obtain that information by the reporter might more plausibly be seen as a kind of co-conspiratorial act. being a reporter, I'm, I'm less comfortable um, traipsing in the fields of the hypothetical than I am in just reporting what's happened.
4: Nsinga. Hi. Um, Dr. Nsinga Burton. I'm chair of the Communication and Media Studies Department. Uh, I have more of a comment than a question. Um, I asked my class to come here because I've, we're definitely interested in and this is my media criticism class, we're definitely interested in talking about issues of surveillance, uh, First Amendment rights, um, what it means to be a journalist uh, in this new age of digital media. Um, I'd be remiss if I did not say that I completely disagree with you on your comments um, about uh, John Mitchell and his record on civil rights. I would call him an anti-civil rights person, um, and I completely disagree with you about John Mitchell, your characterization of him. However, I do encourage people to read your book So that they can get your perspective. Uh, So my comment is. um, Before we we go
1: to your comment, and I'm completely prepared to allow you to have your comment, is there a single fact that you're prepared to adduce to the record of our times for the benefit of our audience that would suggest that John Mitchell is anti civil rights, or you just want to put that out there and move on?
4: A single fact. Okay, I have a a Ph.D., so I don't actually have to.
1: I didn't ask what your educational attainment is.
4: I don't have to give you facts. My point is this. I would like for my students to read for themselves about John Mitchell and his legacy. And I think I was saying before you interrupted me that they should also read your book so that they could get your perspective. I do... I am in the habit of, this is why I told my students to come today, even when my students were saying, oh, he, was for, he, he works for Fox, why would I go see him? I say he has a great perspective on certain things. I am in total agreement with you about what you've been facing with the Justice Department. I think it's crap. I'm a journalist as well. All right, I write for The, the Root, which is owned by the Washington Post and Slate. All right, So I'm not here to hammer you. I'm just here to say that as a black woman who grew up in the South and whose parents grew up in the segregated South who faced much violence in the schools in the South that you should be clear when you say something like John Mitchell desegregated or helped desegregate schools in the South and there was absolutely no violence. That's what I wanted to tell you.
1: Next question. Uh, Sabrina. Oh, I'm sorry, oh, were you going.
4: I didn't okay. Hi, I'm Sabrina, freshman from Austin, Texas. Um, I was um, sorry, let me start over, okay. Um Do you think that policies such as the Espionage Act that the government used in order to collect information about you and your family are threatening free speech and the First Amendment?
1: As I said earlier, I think that uh, this pursuit of a record number of leak prosecutions by this administration, more than all of its predecessors combined, is meant to uh, inhibit people from talking to reporters. I've experienced that in my own dealings with people. If we can agree that that would have a deleterious effect on the First Amendment, then yes. I think the answer to your question is yes.
4: Um, And I don't know enough about this, but I think that, um, was it the Protect America Act that Bush passed in 2007? Do you think that also threatens the First Amendment?
1: Uh, The Protect America Act doesn't strike a bell. The Patriot Act, I remember, um, if this is some subsidiary act or subsequent thing, it, I, I have to plead ignorance, and I'm sorry for that. Um, you know, but I think a, a very healthy debate could be had about the Patriot Act and about a number of the post 9 11 measures that have been taken in the name of national security. Um, look, it's always going to be a delicate balance, right? And President Obama has used that very phrase repeatedly uh, this year in discussing these kinds of issues. Um, I remember on the day of 9-11, I spoke to someone who said to me, today is the day we say goodbye to civil liberties in this country. Back in Nixon's time, you know, there was a a great hue and cry about the repression in America with spelling America with a K and so on. And yet in Nixon's time, we had Woodstock, okay? 500,000 people got together to get naked, smoke drugs, and dance around in mud, and not a single thing happened to any of them. You know, the idea that there was some great clampdown on civil liberties in the age of Woodstock is kind of laughable to me. Um... You know, again, by way of perspective, Sabrina, in late 1974, after Nixon had resigned and been pardoned by Gerald Ford, Watergate was over, except for the trial of Nixon's aides, which no one but me cared about. Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times published a big front-page story on the New York Times. And it basically said that for 20-plus years, the Central Intelligence Agency had violated its own charter and conducted domestic spying and espionage against anti-war groups, dissident groups, black groups, radical groups, had opened mail, had done break-ins. You know, what came to be known as the family jewels in CIA history. And there was a huge outcry. In fact, the House and Senate select committees on intelligence were set up in response to this to provide oversight of the intelligence, the runaway rogue elephant known as the intelligence community. There was a huge hue and cry, and the intelligence budgets were, were decreased as a result of it. Some people question whether we need an intelligence community, if it's not just gonna spy on us. That was 1974. And the question America was asking was, could Big Brother really be listening in to me? Cut to late 2005, when the ubiquitous James Risen of the New York Times broke a big story to the effect that the Bush administration, Bush 43, Bush Cheney, was engaging in warrantless wiretapping here in the United States of suspected terrorists who might be having overseas calls with non-U.S. citizens. Outside of the Beltway, outside of Washington, D.C., there was basically no hue and outcry. None of you probably even remember James Risen's story. Well, what, what was the great intervening event? 9-11, and what did we learn after 9-11? We learned that an FBI agent in Minneapolis could be typing into the system, the great almighty system, that there are, there's a group called Al-Qaeda overseas that is sending its people to the United States to enroll in our flight training courses to learn how to take off but not land. And an FBI agent in Phoenix, Arizona, could be typing in the same data point. And the great almighty system did not take these two data points in the year of our Lord, 2001, what, 18 years or so after Cy Hirsch had published his big expose, and it did not connect them. The system did not recognize them, connect the dots, and make the policymakers act accordingly. And the big question that America asked after 9-11 and continues to ask today, what with the Patriot Act and the other one that you mentioned, is not anymore, is Big Brother, could Big Brother be listening to me? The question Americans ask after an event like 9-11 is, good Lord, for all the money we shovel into the mouth of Big Brother, is Big Brother doing its job? Is Big Brother doing what it needs to do to protect us? And that explains the disparity you saw in the response to Cy Hirsch's article in 1974 and James Risen's in 2005, what, 30 plus, 31 years, I guess. Now that we have been acquainted with the real consequences of international terrorism in a direct and material way on our own soil, the question anymore isn't, could Big Brother be listening? It's, what the hell is Big Brother doing with all of our money? And I think the greater shock today would be, if Edward Snowden had come out and said, the NSA is not harvesting all of your data. And instead, I think you see in response to the Snowden revelations, a kind of sh- great collective shrug. It would be more shocking to us if there was some facet of our online existence that wasn't being harvested. And again, the question is, are you doing what you should be doing with all this harvested data?
0: Travis. Hi,
2: my name is Travis Miyashiro, I'm a junior philosophy and economics double major. Um, I, wanted to make a, I wanted to ask you a question related to what you believed a reporter was, but I realized that as I was coming up to ask I had not completely remembered exactly what you had said, so would you be willing to repeat that?
1: Look, in simplest terms, a reporter is someone who reports the news. I asked William F. Buckley once. Uh, William F. Buckley is the kind of the founder of the modern conservative movement. He founded National Review Magazine. He was a rich and handsome and sort of eccentric guy who was a terrific TV performer and skilled debater who had not only in addition to founding that magazine, he had the longest running TV show with a single host. It went on for something like 35 years called Firing Line in which he used to debate liberal guests and so on. And I interviewed him on the occasion of his 75th birthday. This was October of 2000. So the Clinton presidency was coming to a close and I said to him, Mr. Buckley, what ought a responsible historian to say about the Clinton presidency? And Buckley paused for a second. He said, he had a strange way of speaking a kind of affected English accent. And he said, well, a responsible historian, uh, it seems to me uh, would first tell what actually happened. And he said, that said, of course, a great attention would be paid to the aggrandizement of executive power. Um, but so a reporter tells what happened. A reporter adduces facts about our times to the record of our times in an entertaining and digestible way. That's what they do. Okay. So my question was,
2: how, if, if you feel that it is your job to, re, to report what happened, how do you feel about keeping some information not necessarily completely open, because I note, I note that when you were discussing your report, you su- suggested that there were sources that Fox News was aware of, but chose to not reveal exactly what those sources were for understandable, understandable security reasons. But I was, I was wondering how you felt about the, the, sometimes the need in reporting news or in obtaining news to not reveal absolutely everything.
1: It's a compulsion that I, (laughs) to reveal everything that my wife would say, afflicts me all the time, even in social settings, where she says I go on too long. Um, Look, the mere act of writing is to impose order on chaos. To fill a blank canvas as a painter is to impose order on chaos. No painter could paint a painting that would include everything that's going on around him in the given scene he wishes to depict. If you were to have to write an article about James Rosen's terribly fatiguing talk to this audience tonight, uh, and you had 800 words to do so, just the mere fact of you having a word count that you couldn't exceed is to impose order on chaos, Uh, you wouldn't seek to reproduce every word I said or every word my antagonist from the chair of the, the, the communications department said. You wouldn't seek to, uh, to represent it all because that would be overwhelming to the reader or the consumer of what you're doing. And merely ordering the chaos is itself a kind of artifice, right? It's a, it's a concession to realities and therefore a kind of engaging in a trick of sorts. Well. That's not exactly how Rosen's talk went, the way the reporter summed it up, but the reporter's got a job to do and do it in 800 words and do it by tonight. So is that reporter disclosing everything that I said or everything Sandy said in the introduction to me or everything my questioner said in that pointed set of comments? No, but they're going to sort of try and represent it and they're gonna leave out certain things and they're not gonna disclose certain things in the interest of comprehensibility, digestibility. In the case that you were mentioning, we withheld certain facts for security reasons. Um, So the answer is there's all sorts of good reasons to withhold, to fail, to disclose, to edit, uh, and to omit. But I hope I've been complete in answering you.
0: James, um, I actually, on many occasions, this gets discussed, who are journalists, who are editors, to decide what should be withheld and what should be published. Do they, do they know enough? And um, in the past I've defended the right and the competence of editors to make these decisions. Uh, but how, how can we be sure that people in those roles are going to be wise or will not be motivated by some kind of selfish or narrow interest or perspective? And I think a lot of Americans would say, well, how do we know that an editor at Fox News or a producer at Fox News knows more than, say, a State Department official about what should be, what should be allowed to be public and what should, what should be kept private?
1: By way of the Socratic method, the question I put in return to your question is how we really know that the electrician I've called via the phone book to come and fix my lighting system really knows what the best decisions are to be made about how to fix that Well, with respect, system. I don't think Are journalists us. and editors any more suspect in the execution of the decision making that they're entrusted with um, performing than any other profession or any other trade? Should we, uh, should, we, should we subject journalists and editors to some higher standard of scrutiny about uh, the wisdom of their decision making than we should say the, the surgeons? or uh, internal medicine practitioners?
0: Well, you know, with respect, I don't think the, the parallel is exactly right. Um, I, I do happen to believe that journalists are in a good position, especially if they're, or journalists and editors, especially if they've been rather specialized, had a lot of experience and seen things and are less likely to be panicked by a classification stamp than, say, a State Department official. However, I don't think the electrician is dealing with national security questions. The surgeon is doing a very important job, but not dealing with national security questions either. So I think the public is entitled to demand some level of accountability or credentials or qualifications. And I don't think we, putting myself back in the journalist role, I don't think we've done a very good job of explaining or defending our right to do that. that that's really what I meant to the say. The
1: problem with the schemata you propose is that there is no license that can be required or dispensed in order to permit someone to write for a living. No, of course not. it shouldn't and be. If, and, and if we were to be involved in that business, then you would very quickly see yourself on a path to censorship. And so I don't know what kind of institutional guarantees can be offered to the reading public or the TV viewing public that would assure them that the people who are responsible, responsible for preparing that newspaper or that newscast fully thought things through. Um, the fact is that newspapers, internet sites, TV news organizations, are, at the end of the day, businesses, commercial concerns, corporations. They live and die, as they should, by the profit motive. And the only check and balance against unwise editors or unwise producers, such as you conjure in your scenario, would be a news organization that is run by such unwise people to the point where its product becomes unreliable and the discerning buying public recognizing as much ceases to fund them and they die of natural attrition. When you say that the electrician is not engaged in national security, that's true. But the electrician or the surgeon can more proximately be the cause of my death than the associate deputy news editor on the Metro desk. and so in the end, we have to rely on the free market to some extent to provide the kinds of checks and balances that I think you're searching for All with right. your question. Fair enough. I, the hour grows
0: late. And I want to take one or two a, last questions. I just wanted
2: to say thank you for responding to thank my you, question. Thank you, Travis.
0: Um, but I, I don't, as, as proud as I am of my career as a journalist, I don't subscribe to editorial infallibility. Ben.
5: Hi there. Uh, ben Ehrlich, uh, Westchester, New York, CompSci. Um, I just wanted to speak to a few things and ask you a question. First of all, you started talking about the 60s and you said that uh, clamped, I don't remember exactly what you said, you said something to the tune of uh, clampdown on social movement was like uh, ridiculous, you were speaking about the freedoms of Woodstock. Um, I want to debate that. Um, Specifically, I want to say that it's not ridiculous that the government was trying to suppress um, people's rights. Uh, the Chicago 7 trial is an example of this. The marches that were consistently put down and not given permits to be held were an example of this, even though they were just exercising their rights. Um, the illegal infiltration of the Youth International Party and students being shot on campuses around the country, I would say that's a pretty clear um, fact that... Um, the youth was being suppressed, and even if Woodstock was happening, that was upstate New York, and when someone did try and get political, when Abby Hoffman did try and present a political message at Woodstock, he got hit in the face with a guitar. By? Um, oh, I don't know.
1: Help me out here. Pete Townshend of The Who. Thank you.
0: You really have quite a detailed knowledge <laughs> of this.
5: That's a good story. Um, Another thing, um, I wanted to speak to a point you made in free speech class today, uh, which I didn't get a chance to respond to. You make the point that um, the viewership of Fox is the largest viewership of any syndicated news network, something to that tune.
0: Any, any cable news network, Any right. cable
5: news network. Um, and you said that there were two possibilities for this, that um, either people knew that Fox was right-leaning, right-leaning, and um, not fair and balanced, or that Fox is truly fair and balanced. And I wanna say that um, in either case, it doesn't really matter what the right answer is, but there's that old saying, so many Elvis fans can't be wrong. But at one point, everyone on this planet thought that the Earth was flat, so I would say Elvis fans can definitely be wrong. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And finally, sort of off topic, but, I'm just curious. I did a lot of research on North Korea last year, and as you are someone who has had access to far better material on North Korea than me, I was wondering what your opinion on the situation in North Korea is specifically. Do you think reunification could ever happen? What do you think is gonna happen? Is there gonna be war? What do you think of the situation?
1: Thank you, Ben. Let's address these in order of importance, so we'll start (laughs) with the last first. We'll come back to Pete Townsend and Abby Hoffman later. Reunification between the two Koreas is very unlikely as long as the regime in North Korea endures. North Korea is a brutal Stalinist dictatorship that has practiced a genocide among, amongst its own people where the average height of the population has shrunk due to malnutrition, where at least two million people are believed to have been starved to death And where such resources as its very meager economy, propped up largely by Chinese assistance, is concerned, it has mostly been used to pursue nuclear weapons. Uh, In addition, North Korea sponsors terrorism. North Korea is responsible for the abduction of Japanese citizens that it has held for 30 some odd years. The North Korean regime, in short, is a rogue regime and probably even allowing for Iran and, this, and, and Russia, the most evil regime on earth. And it is difficult to see how reunification happens until and, and unless that regime collapses. The Chinese, who have no great love of this regime, even though they prop it up, continue to prop it up because they are afraid that if this regime collapses, which it certainly would without Chinese assistance, then the Chinese would be faced with a massive influx of refugees across its border.
5: May I ask, do you see the collapse of North Korea in the future, the immediate
1: or otherwise? Not without Chinese acquiescence. And that doesn't appear to be likely. This is a regime that's almost survived 70 years now. Um, We can look back in history at rogue regimes that haven't even survived that long. And what's more, the North Koreans, thanks to their February 12 nuclear test, are now believed to have not one but two paths to a nuclear bomb, plutonium, and highly enriched uranium. So it's a very dangerous regime. It's a problem that has not gotten better over the last five years, but gotten a lot worse. To your other questions about, one was about the 60s and the alleged repression of Wait, youth. before we move on, may I throw on a fact about North Korea? Um, I don't
5: know if you think they're uh, like a looming danger. I mean, you might know more about this than me, but I would just like to throw out to the crowd because I think this is sensationalized too much that by our estimates, the most powerful nuclear weapon they have in their disposal is only powerful enough if detonated at the, um, the Empire State Building to reach Central Park.
1: What they lack right now is a delivery system to deliver a miniaturized warhead to our shores but if you were to review uh, the expert commentary that accompanied their February 12 device and the test of it, uh, you would see that most analysts who are much more learned in this than I am concluded that this was a very unsettling moment because they had not only used a new path to the bomb, highly enriched uranium, as opposed to their past two tests, which were powered by plutonium, but also they had employed a miniaturized device And the best minds on this subject, Ben, concluded in February that North Korea was probably three to five years away from the development of not only a powerful nuclear device, but also the delivery systems necessary to deliver it to our shores. So those are the facts. Um, Were there police abuses in the 1960s? Of course there were. What do we remember about the 1960s, generally speaking, though? It was a time of upheaval and change and turbulence, but it was a time of ever-expanding liberties for young people in this country. You want to compare the liberties young people enjoyed in 1955 to those they enjoyed in 1975? Um, and what was your third question about Ben? Please remind me.
5: I uh, have it in here somewhere. Um, oh, it was about Fox News and about, yeah, the, um, sure. and about
1: ratings dominance of Fox News and what are the logical implications of that? Again even though there's at least one member of this audience who has uh, sworn herself in opposition to the demonstration of facts, here are the facts. Fox News has been the most popular, most watched cable news station for some 12 years in a row, in every hour, every time slot. Sometimes two to one against its competitors combined, sometimes four to one. This isn't bragging, it's just a fact. It would be a fact if I left Fox News tomorrow. It would probably continue unabated if I left Fox News tomorrow. So what should we deduce from this fact that Fox News has the widest audience of all cable news? Cable news is how people get their news today. That's also a fact. In 2009, the communications director for the Obama White House, Anita Dunn, said on the record, that Fox News is an arm of the Republican Party. It is not a real news organization. They then tried to, as I've mentioned earlier, get Fox News evicted from the network news pool unsuccessfully. Now, let us take the facts we know. Fox News has the largest audience in cable news in America for 12 years in a row, every hour on the hour. Anita Dunn and Barack Obama, who has repeated these charges in the Rolling Stone interview he did with Jan Wenner, say that Fox News is an arm of the Republican Party. It's a propaganda wing. So what should we say for this viewership of Fox News? What are the logical conclusions to be drawn from this? I could mention, as a side note, the Pew Charitable Trusts, whose integrity no one doubts, do a study every year, and they find that Fox News' audience is the most heterogeneous along the ideological spectrum of all three major news cable, cable news operations. That is to say, we have the greatest, just most even distribution along the spectrum of liberals, conservatives, and independents in our viewership. CNN and MSNBC don't have such an even distribution along the spectrum. But let's put aside that fact. Let's just try and come to some logical conclusion about Fox's ratings dominance for such a long period of time and this assertion that it's a wing of the Republican Party. What must we say for that largest of news audiences that is most evenly distributed along the ideological spectrum? Well, only one of two things can be true. Either all of those people or the majority of them or some number of them Understand that Fox News is a wing of the Republican Party, and they like it that way. And this largest of news audiences continues to get its news from Fox News because they like it getting it from a, a wing of the Republican Party, which should suggest that this is a center right nation. In which case, the election of Barack Obama, the re election of Barack Obama, should be quite puzzling to us. Or we can conclude that this largest of news audiences, the most evenly distributed along the ideological spectrum, doesn't understand as only Anita Dunn and Barack Obama and Jan Wenner understand. Only they are sophisticated enough to understand that Fox is a slanted wing of the Republican party. In which case, you're insulting the intelligence and the genius of the American people writ large. There's a third possibility that Fox News, by and large, outside of the opinion hours, what we consider our editorial page, as opposed to our news pages, does indeed present what it claims to present as an ongoing commercial concern, which is fair and balanced news. And this largest of news audiences, evenly spread across the ideological spectrum, does recognize that, and likes getting its news that way. We report, you decide, Ben.
0: James, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming.